This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. In this episode, Assistant Professor in Expressive Arts Therapy, Danielle Drake, explains how engaging communities in creative processes can facilitate social change. This talk was recorded on April 5th, 2017, in front of a live audience in San Francisco. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. We're going to jump right on into it with some storytelling. (laughs) I thought peace would come if you came. Only then could I breathe, releasing this anxiety. Make believing that my peace could be found in ever-daunting relationships with men who never cared anything about me. See, every day we misunderstand it, manipulate it, with the belief that avoidance of self-inflicted circumstance sustains it that officers placed in neighborhoods of color can keep it, that war can bring it, that someone or something outside of ourselves holds it. Obliviously, we misuse it, becoming played out and stripped of meaning as it's left trailing behind parting goodbyes. Peace, my brother, peace, my sister. I searched hopelessly for it, seeking peace in lying eyes and deceitful smiles, elevated career positions and shallow love transitions. But like days lived in Norwegian winters, I came up short. See, naively I was thinking it was as common as tongues in folks because so easily it slips from the tongues of folks. So easily we forget it comes not from the tongues, but the souls of folks. I searched peace and frenzied conversations surrounded constantly by people, anyone, erecting blinders, concealing truth, denying truth, somehow hoping I could change the truth that I didn't like myself. Or more specifically, I didn't like the choices I was making for myself. I allowed my confidence to reside in the comments of others, allowed everyone else to use their lives as the gauge of what mine should be, repeating time after time after time, why does this always happen to me, becoming a whining victim of circumstance, yet unwilling to conduct further investigation into the patterns that took me to that place, that moment. And when you can't see the God in you, you don't recognize there is good in you, and I couldn't see the creativity in me. Always studious, I was that bookworm, that seven-year-old dictionary reader, never imagining it would turn me into a storytelling word dreamer. But it came. Inevitably, it comes like pressing combs after blow dryers and somehow diving from the depths of disillusioned dreams. I found it. Silently asking questions answered with strokes of a pen, I found it sitting quietly listening with yarn and hooks and fabric and thread and spaces between lines and pages of books, I found it. In locked eyes and minds, I found it. In hard conversations with ethereal home and sonic vibrations of lonely moans found first in fragmented pieces of peace, then stretched long and wide like impatient spaces. Then by changing the lonely time to spending time, I made friends with myself. And y'all, I found out that if you can't spend time by yourself, then you probably don't like yourself. And I know some of you may not understand this, but I do not miss the crowds and parties, relishing instead my peacetime, I found it. And I abundantly experience it when I praise it, 
consistently giving thanks for it. I understand a peace surpassing human understanding. And it's the peace that I found while writing this piece that I share with you. So peace. So it seems interesting to start a talk about social change with such a personal piece of poetry. But I did this intentionally because I want to deconstruct the idea of social change being some big grand event. We often think that social change and social justice means that we have to be protesting in the streets or creating some awesome like performance you know, street thing, and you gotta be out in front of lots of people, but really, it's that and so much more. It's also about the peace that we try to create in ourselves, in our lives, in our families, amongst our friends, with strangers we meet, person to person, that this is really what social change is about. So I wanna talk a little bit about just the fact that we cannot be part of a movement, small or large, really, until we reconcile ourselves with ourselves. That we have to be comfortable with who we are before we can be a friend, before we can support any other person. So I'm gonna talk about that a little bit um, in, in context with like some of the larger moments of social change and things in between, but I want to talk about how I learned how to be an agent of social change. So um, I was born to parents who are from the U.S. southern region. So my mom is from Texas, my dad is from Mississippi. They both were born in the 40s during Jim Crow era, southern politics, all of that, and their parents moved them to California seemingly for a better life, better opportunities, things like that, and were met with more racism, um, lack of opportunity, that kind of thing. Um, so during that time, black folks could take one of two paths. You could either be activist or you could be assimilationist. And my parents were assimilationist. They wanted us to be able to have good opportunities. And so they felt like they wanted us to um, blend in as much as possible so that we would have good opportunities. Hence my name, Danielle Yvette. It's a white girl name. <laughs> On purpose. My sisters' names are Kimberly Morgan, Hillary Ashley, and Megan Amber. There's no more white than you can get than that. And it was because my mother worked at a bank and she worked in the loan department. And she saw how when people who had ethnic names applied for loans, how they would not get seen, they would get, the, the applications would be tossed to the side. So she did her social activism through naming us in a way that obscured our identity long enough for us to have an opportunity. I'm gonna cry. <laughs> Probably several times 
throughout, but I feel like that's the only way for me to be authentic. And I am about breaking down and deconstructing what it means to be a human and, and here and professional. That's, you know, we, we come to these places and think that we're supposed to, you know, live up to some standard, but my standard is I cry. You know, I've been doing this since I was like two, so. <laughs> I'm like, okay, where's my tissue? It's in my pocket. You see that? That is classy. <laughs> Toilet paper from the bathroom. All right. Um, so the other piece, oh, see, there you go. See, I should have just asked. But you know, that's just like creative resilience. You just like figure out what you need and then go do it. <laughs> but um, so the other piece that I, I really recall just in terms of my parents um, taking an opportunity to teach me how to be a social activist was um, my mother who never had dolls that were her color. My mother grew up in the 40s. When she got dolls, they looked white with blonde hair and blue eyes. And um, she just vowed that she would never buy her children dolls that didn't represent them. And she made a letter writing campaign to Mattel. And she wrote letters and letters and letters and now, when you go into Toys R Us, they have a whole wide array of dolls that represent lots of different ethnicities. And you all can thank my mom for that. <laughs> she now has this like massive Mr. and Mrs. Santa Claus, like Black Santa Claus collection. It's insane. When it's Christmas, we bring out all of the Santa Clauses. They're everywhere. <laughs> and that again was her just saying, you know, that the only people she knew that brought gifts to this house look like you, so your Santa's gonna look like you. <laughs> so um, just to talk a little bit about what I'm gonna try and cover in this talk because I always over-prepare, so I have much more information than I probably will be able to share in the hour, but we'll see, I'll work through it. Um, but I wanna situate myself. I am a um, African-American womanist, black feminist um, from Southern California, raised there. I went to school in Central California, then I moved to the Bay Area, so I am absolutely a California girl. I've never lived anywhere else. That situates me in a very specific way, which I'll talk about later. Um, I'm cisgender, heterosexual woman. Again, that situates me in a particular way. Um, like I said, I'm from Los Angeles, so I am a little ratchet and <laughs> bougie. <laughs> And I also am a little fabulous, shallow at times, and it's okay. <laughs> um, but I, I say this because 
often when we think about activists, they're like super serious and like, you know, seemingly hard to get to know. And that's not what I believe social change to be about. I think it's about accessibility, really, and to be able to have conversations, lots of different um, expansive conversations that help us bridge the gap towards one another. Um, so I'm gonna talk a little bit about multi-level social change and the necessity for change. Um, my family history is gonna be woven in there. Um, cultural experiences of Africans in America. My identity is a reluctant revolutionary. That's an interesting one. <laughs> um, some African-centered perspective of social justice, expressive arts and the creative process, um, African-American creativity and the will to adorn, um, expressive arts as spiritual creativity and neurogenerative con contemplative practice. Yes, we're going there. <laughs> and um, I'll be talking a little bit about my dissertation as well. We'll see what we cover. It's a lot. Um, so again, I started off talking about social change from a very individualized um, perspective. And I think that I wanted to start there also because I wanted to like prioritize how people take in information. And one of the things that I know is that when we have experiences that are difficult for us, that are hard for us, where people say things that um, take us out of our place of peace and sort of knock us off balance, that we remember those experiences more than we, um, than we remember experiences where people have been positive. And they say that it takes five positive comments to combat one negative one. So when we talk about microaggressions and things like that that happen in our everyday lives, moments where people don't recognize our diversity, however it shows up, don't recognize moments of our intersectional identities, that that creates a rift that then we have to work extra hard to be able to recover from. So, um, you know, it also activates sort of this trauma response in our bodies that we then also have to work through. So when we talk about trauma response, response we're talking about um, activating the sympathetic nervous system where our whole body comes alert and we get ready to fight because that activates our fight, flight, freeze response and we become protective. And so what social change is gonna hopefully do is make it so that we have less of those experiences that we're having to navigate on a daily basis. Um, and it happens in ourselves, in our person-to-person -person relationships, in our communities, our families, and then in the larger setting. Um, and so when we talk about large-scale social change, I often like to talk about it from a liberation psychology perspective, which means that we get together in groups, we decide as a community what actions need to be taken, we form committees and teams and leagues, that's also narrative, 
<laughs> and we go out and make a social action. The piece that becomes really important in this is not so much the social action, even though that often gets the media attention, it gets you know people thinking about it on a large scale, but the thing that is really important is the coming back into those small groups and talking about what happened. Did we you know, make the impact that we wanted to make? Were we kind to each other when we were doing this? Did we lose our sense of peace? And, and um, how did we interact with one another when we did this? Did it seem to achieve the goals that we had planned out for ourselves? And then that, that process of being able to talk to ourselves. How was I affected by that process? What did it mean to me? How did I change? What could I have done differently? So all of that is talking about the reflective praxis. So it's about the action, the going out, doing the work, coming back, reflecting, so that we can do it better, more efficiently, whatever, the next time. And it may not even be more efficiently, but just what can we do to improve our practice? So I'm gonna talk a little bit about that from an arts perspective a little later. But um, I wanted to talk about why the world needs to change. One of my friends who's here in the audience was um, telling me about a question that her child asked. Her child is four years old and asked, why does the world need to change? And I thought that that was a very profound question from a four-year-old. I'm like, deep thinker, okay, I like it. <laughs> um, but you know, we, that we're constantly navigating these myriad social issues, right? Racism, homophobia, transphobia, poverty, the complexity that occurs with all of these and more um, experiences and when all of those experiences intersect. And when you spend your life living in a lot of your identity positions in the margins, it takes up a lot of space space that we could use to do something else, to be creative or whatever else. It takes a lot of mental and like um, emotional energy to be in the margins. And it prevents us from this opportunity to seek fullness of experience um, in which projections can be shed, pain and suffering alleviated, opportunities to flourish or just get a damn rest, you know? Cause it's tiring to constantly be fighting all the time. Um, so ironically, it is the resistance that comes from arts engagement that often offers that liminal creative space for us to recover and to rejuvenate ourselves. And that is really important when we think about the history of Africans in America. Um, I, again, I identify as African-American. That was an intentional choice. Um, I believe location is important and I believe history is important. And um, we've got an interesting history that we are constantly navigating in this country. Um, so one of the things that I have discovered, I mean, I, I sort of knew it maybe 
um, subconsciously, but to have the, the, the words sort of written out tends to change it a little bit. But um, during the African Holocaust, AKA the Middle Passage experience and the enslavement experience and all of that, um, Africans were taken from Africa, brought to South America, the Caribbean, Central America, United States, North America. Um, but what was interesting to find out is that by 1802, um, Africans had essentially stopped being uh, brought to the United States. This meant, and, and the, I think the, st the statistic is that 6% of the Africans who were brought from um, Africa, or West Africa, I'm gonna be more specific, came to the United States. What this means is that the site of labor production during slavery was the black woman's womb and the breeding capacity of black men. That's how this country was built. Um, we were divided, separated, pulled apart from our communities, families, partners, parents from children, constantly. This was the way that this country was founded. It also meant that the infusion and impact of an African ethos was also diminished generation by generation because we did not have the constant influx of that African ethos coming in to fortify the things that have been stripped away. This is an interesting experience, y'all. I'm serious to talk about this. Um, much different than writing about it. So our cultural expressions were highly controlled and highly monitored. So this means that we lost the drum, we lost our foods, our religious practices, and other culturally valued symbols. But we also resisted and we held on and we adapted and did what we could. We learned how to fight with what we had. And we fought back with our movements, with our voices, and with our words. So this piece is called Morning Glory. And I wrote it um, a couple of years ago. Every year in the Expressive Arts Therapy Program, before we start the school year, we do faculty performances. And we do it because we don't want our students to come in thinking that we're gonna ask something of them that we're not willing to do ourselves. So we're very revealing <laughs> and we work hard on these performances and it's kind of our way of being able to, you know, create together as a team and to um, connect with our artist selves. We have an artist scholar practitioner model in our program and we really highlight our artist selves and we try to take really good care of our artist selves and model that so that our students know how to take good care of their artist selves. Um, 
So this is a piece that I wrote uh, a couple of years ago for that faculty performance. Growing up in South Central Los Angeles in the 80s amid the gang wars and drive-by shootings, we kept a garden in our backyard filled with greens, tomatoes, marigold, and morning glory. My mom used to always say, you can't kill a morning glory. The vining purple flowers that open up their petals to the first light of the sun and follow it all day, only enfolding themselves back into their petals in the waning sunlight. This flower has, with its br brilliant purple petals, has an indomitable spirit. Reminds me of my people, black folks, the African-American community brought against our will in chains to a land stolen from its native residents. We built this country with our backs, our bones, our blood, our tears. Had our religion stripped from us, told us not to celebrate Obatala and Oshun, Yemenya and Ogun. Yet deep in southern forests, encircled by trees, we took the Christianity they gave us and imbued it with our own traditions, created circles, shout rings, healed ourselves with the creative presence of each other. With the hand clap and a deep moan, rhythms carried from Africa in our bodies, in our hands, our feet, in the slip of our backbones. This is the history of gospel music, of the blues and jazz, of rock and roll, of hip hop and R&B. This black ecstatic tradition, the morning glory, the dance and rhythm that never dies. Fast forward to me, a grad student working on a PhD, taking a course learning about the history of psychology. I am activated and offended at every turn of the page. A history that begins in Greece with no acknowledgement of the African foundations of Greek thought, the unchecked, uncritiqued elitism, patriarchy, sole focus on Northern Eurocentrism, the glossing over of phrenology and eugenics, the absolute denial of indigenous roots of healing, feminism, culturally based psychologies, movements created by the people, postmodernism, liberation psychologies, LGBT, mental health survivor, and neurodiverse movements, all denied because they weren't even mentioned. Ghost movements because they don't belong in the history. I see myself nowhere, yet I'm here. Reading these books, turning these pages, writing these papers, posting to the online course pages, me, my people who were denied education. I'm not supposed to be here. Sitting in a class in a PhD program, I'm the student that they weren't prepared for. Black, woman, poor, mouthy, passionate, sassy, emotional, sensitive. And I feel the tension of my presence, the lack of my representation in my body, my core, my hands, my feet. But then, I remember I'm descended from the black ecstatic tradition, the morning glory, opening to the sun, the vining flower that never dies. So maybe there is a way out. Maybe the way out is in. Maybe I can cook about it. Black eyed peas and rice, a pot of collard greens, and a cast iron pan of cornbread. 
Maybe I can make music or playlists about it, feel the resonance of the djembe and the doon-doon, the hand clap and the tambourine, listen to outcasts tell me, ain't nobody so fast me, I'm just so fresh, so clean. <laughs> or listen to most deaf sing, my umi say, shine your light on the world, shine your light for the world to see. Or Queen Latifah say, ooh, ladies first, ladies first. <laughs> Maybe I can write about it. Lines of broken English and Southern dialect dripping from my tongue like honey. Or maybe I can dance about it, shake a tail feather, shake my shimmy, dance a New Orleans second line to it. Maybe I can twerk and whip and nay-nay about it. Or maybe I can let my soul fly and dance about it and dance about it and dance about it and dance about it. Or maybe I can cry about it and then get up the next day and work hard on it. I am the morning glory, that beautiful vining purple flower that follows the sun and never dies. So it took me a, a long time to like figure out this whole social justice thing. It really did. It still does. I'm still navigating it. But I, I call myself a reluctant revolutionary because um, I didn't know anything about being a, an activist, really. I didn't, and I kind of still don't. <laughs> I just tell the truth mostly, and I think that that's a big piece of it. Um, but writing sort of laid my shit bare in a way that I wasn't ready for, but I was, I was prepared because I had been doing a lot of study and reading about my culture and wanting to know about my history before slavery and doing all of this work. And so while I wasn't ready for it, I was ready for it. Um, and my parents, I feel like, did a great job of protecting me from the things that I needed to be afraid of long enough for me to see myself for myself and to see all too soon that suffering is infinite and nurtured by inequity. It's injustice's job to make us feel powerless, overwhelmed, and singularly insignificant. That's its job. But this is the power that community and expressive arts have. We connect. We remember each other. They, those, those two things, community and the arts, hold you and nurture your voice. So... I really learned how to do this by moving to Oakland. I'm from Los Angeles. We don't protest there. We, not a lot, in, in small communities, Lamert Park, I'll say. <laughs> we, we will protest in Lamert Park, but generally speaking, we don't protest. We don't protest like they do here in the Bay Area, and certainly not in Oakland. And so, when I moved to Oakland, it nurtured me in two very specific ways. Um, and they're both related to expressive arts and social change. One is it showed me my African history. It and it showed me the power of my voice. 
I started doing West African dance the moment I arrived here, not because I had planned on doing West African dance, but because my roommate was in a West African dance troupe. <laughs> and she was like, come along with me. I was like, sure, because I love to dance. Little did I know that that was going to be the pivotal moment in my adult life. I was broken open by the drum. I, I, the power of the drum and the historical sort of cultural movements were recognizable to me in a way that I was not expecting. It awakened the DNA in my genes. I became a different person through the drum. Um, I, I remembered ancient parts of myself. And I remember it being like so overwhelming and um, it was such a new experience. I didn't have words for it. I thought I didn't have words for it, but then I just kept thinking, I gotta say something about this. I'm like reading these books and you know, feeling this energy that's in the Bay Area. What do I do about it? And so I just started writing and writing and writing and writing and writing. And then I found myself at the Java House, for those of you who are old school Oakland. <laughs> and I um, said a poem. And I remember going up to the mic like this. <laughs> I'm shaking my hands for the podcast members. <laughs> but I, my hands were shaking so badly, I could barely read the words on the page. I was so nervous. Um, but it was important, because, and I didn't read um, anything after that for a year, because I was so embarrassed. I was like, what did I just do? That was the worst idea ever. Um, but the other piece that was really important to me in terms of moving to Oakland was an opportunity to more fully connect with resistance and the liberatory action that I really feel in the air in Oakland, particularly at that time when I moved in 2000. I just felt like I could feel the Black Panthers like, you know, just all around me. I really could. <laughs> and I began to want to know more about myself as a resistor and about myself as a person of African descent. Um, so one of the things that I wanna do is talk about like an African-centered perspective of social justice. And I have to shout out Adiva Detterville, who's here, who um, is an amazing scholar. She's gonna have to get her own big ideas at CIS Talk to talk her, her um, scholarship, because it's amazing. Um, but she teaches about um, African-centered, psychology, among other things, but most of her work is African-centered scholarship. And um, recently I was in a training with Denise Boston. I was co-facilitating that training with her, actually helping out and then kind of jumped in. <laughs> but um, she was talking about um, the seven pr principles of Ma'at. And I started to think about this. I was like, actually, this is a model for social justice. So I really started to look at it. 
And, you know, the seven principles of Ma'at is an ancient Egyptian governing system. It was the first governing system. And um, it also personifies the goddess who regulates the stars, season, seasons, and actions of humans and deities. So in order to set the universe in order from chaos at the moment of creation, at the moment of creation, this is like deep, to, to, when, when you're creating, let's just talk about like the liminal space for a minute. When we create, often it gets messy, there's a lot of chaos. It's hard to like figure out what is happening. But through the process of creation, uh, order starts to emerge. And that order is what Ma'at is about. It's about principles for organizing, principles for being and living in the world in a harmonious way. So when we talk about social justice from an African-centered perspective, we're focused on seven principles, truth being the first one. So that thing that I was talking about, I just mostly tell the truth, that is actually a principle, so I'm all good. Uh, <laughs> then the second principle is justice and righteousness. That means that we have to show up in right action, right thought, right you know, presence and show up and be authentic in our work. Um, that we have to show propriety, that we have to be able to know what's right and wrong and to, and to move from that place. Um, that we have to work in harmony, that we have to be balanced, that we have to work from the law of reciprocity, the law of giving and receiving, it is absolute. Anything that we do comes from the law of reciprocity, and we have to have order. And order is about just being organized for ourselves. And if we walk into our relationships, our personal relationships, our relationships with our coworkers, our families, whoever, that if we do this from these seven principles, most likely we are going to be enacting social change because not everybody does that, you know? So it's just the act of, you know, working from principle can be a social, um, can be an act of social change. So now I wanna talk um, about expressive arts in particular. So, this is something that we've been talking about in the expressive arts therapy program, because everybody's like, okay, so what's expressive arts? <laughs> and the first thing that Phil asked me when, he, when I met him was, okay, so what do you do? What do you tell people when you say expressive arts therapist? And I was like, well, you know, and I gave this like, you know, answer. I don't even remember what it was. But after, I've been really contemplating that question, and this is what I've come up with. Without talking about the therapy piece, that expressive arts is the application of multiple form, art forms for the purpose of transformation. That's what it is, in a nutshell that we use it to be able to transform ourselves um, and that it prioritizes creativity as an act um, and it, its ability to be accessible to and used by everyone. 
And that's the thing that's really important about the expressive arts therapy program is, you know, we're taught, we all come in sort of as artists and we, generally speaking, acknowledge the term artist for ourselves within, that, within our um, community. But when we are talking about, to students, about engaging clients in the arts, then it's like, oh, but no one's gonna wanna do arts and we don't, you know, what if, what, what if people are saying that they're not creative and all of this? Everybody is creative because we were created. We come from a creator. Everything is creative and it's just about helping our clients to remember their own creativity, however it shows up. So creativity links with the general capacity to generate new ideas devise novel solutions, express oneself, and express oneself in a manner that is both unique and appropriate to the context. That's creativity. That's it. It's not like rocket science, but it is, because rocket science was creative. <laughs> so it's also known as an insight experience, the aha moment when someone realizes a solution to a creative problem. Generally speaking, people who acknowledge this creativity in their natural selves tend to be more adventurous and generally associated with a lack of conformity. I like that. <laughs> I'm like, let's not conform. Um, so just in terms of the creative process, it's about recognition of a problem which requires a new response um, that's designed to restore harmony by resolving the challenge. That's what the creative process is about. And so when I think about like the, the creative problem that was challenged or sort of posed to African Americans, it was like, how do you resolve a challenge when you have limited physical resources you're on land that is not your own and was, in fact, stolen. Your voice is not recognized as significant, and you're regarded as less than human. That's a creative challenge. So what do you do to get your needs met? How do you resist? And the resist, the resisting is to get creative. African-American creativity is characterized by the will to adorn. Um, creativity in the African-American community is widely accepted as a spiritual act and not only inseparable from spirituality, but that all forms of creative expression are inseparable from each other. That means being creative is the same as being spiritual, Spiritual is the same as being creative. It's all in there together. So the will to adorn was first described by anthropologist and writer and my soror, Zora Neale Hurston, <laughs> as one of the most important features of African-American linguistics. Um, and a cultural tradition of adornment encompasses a stylized way of walking, talking, adorning the self, use of flamboyance, color, humor, and wit, and it is common to an African-American aesthetic. Now, I'm going to prove that this is true. 
How many times did you see while um, Barack Obama was president, the media hone in on the way he walked? That is the will to adorn. <laughs> um, from brightly colored suits and hats and unique hairstyles, woven, processed, natural, the will to adorn permeates every aspect of the African-American community. It's why I showed up the way I did today, because I'm fly and I know it. <laughs> I mean, it's like swag. You got to have it, you know? What are you going to do if you can't have swag? I mean, again, let me go back and tell you what the creative problem was. How do you resolve a challenge when you have limited resources on land that's not your own, stolen land, a voice that is not recognized as significant, and you are regarded as less than human? You have to show up with swag. There's no other way, no other way around it. Um, but it extends beyond language into all aspects of culture and is rooted in an African essence of being that we have to be creative. We've had to be creative. It was, there was no other option. It was either that, be creative, or die, literally. So I wanna talk about art as a neurogenerative contemplative practice. So what I'd like for everybody to do is put a fist in the air. And when I do this with the brothers and sisters, I call it the black power fist. So um, with your free hand, you're going to touch where your wrist meets the bottom of your hand. This is actually a representation of the brain. This is Dan Siegel's work. Representation of the brain, this here is the brain stem, right? Open up and make a four. This area where your thumb is, that's the limbic system. Curl your fingers back over your thumb. That, where your four fingers are, that's the prefrontal cortex, okay? So each one of those parts of the brain accesses a different part of our emotional system. Our, um, our emotional system is actually part of the brain body. So it's not just the brain, it encompasses the central nervous system. And the central nervous system is what I like to call our, like, feelers and we're constantly like sensing into our environment, sensing the temperature of the room, energy of the person who just walked in the room, hi Katie, <laughs> um, sensing all of these different things. And so our bodies know information before our brains do because it senses it first. It travels through our nervous system, up our spines, to our um, uh, brainstem, and then moves forward to the limbic system. So the brainstem, fight, flight, freeze. Limbic system, emotions, um, memories, trauma is held here, generally speaking. And then our prefrontal cortex is our manager. It's the decision maker. It helps us make good decisions. So when we're talking about 
um, expressive arts and the ways that it can be helpful is that it actually helps to regulate our bodies. When we engage in music, it connects to our emotional experience that's happening in the limbic system, which is why it's great for working with folks with trauma. Often trauma renders people, um, I won't say silent, but it makes it hard for them to express themselves in words. So music is helpful because it can help move that process forward to the prefrontal cortex. Same with dance. Dance activates the nervous system and the um, brainstem and the um, limbic system. And it helps to increase with appreciation of the body and emotional expression. And then visual arts offers nonverbal techniques for releasing through symbolic imagery. All of this is really important because when we engage in arts, when we do our art alone, but especially when we make art with other people, there are certain things that happen that relate very specifically to contemplative practice. A lot of people know it as mindfulness. It's the same thing. I just like to use contemplative practice because it's a more open terminology that doesn't culturally appropriate Buddhism. <laughs> um, so when we set the intention to create, it activates our brain body, both from a bottom-up limbic uh, uh, processing and a top-down prefrontal cortex. So it's actually helping to regulate, to get everything in alignment. Um, creative processes provides release, which is relaxing to the body and engages the parasympathetic nervous system. So when we're in that fight, flight, freeze response, our body is ready to act. That's the sympathetic nervous system. The parasympathetic nervous system is designed to cool us down. That's what engaging in creative processes does. When we intentionally create with others, we increase our feelings of being cared about, which activates the smart vagus. It's the social engagement system, which the smart vagus nerve runs from the brain through the heart into the stomach. So when you're having that feeling like something's not right and you can feel it in your heart in the pit of your stomach, that's your smart vagus nerve doing its job. Don't ignore it. <laughs> Um, you begin to feel more empowered when you create, especially when you're creating with others, which creates feelings of safety, which inhibits the amygdala and hippocampus alarms, that's the trauma alarms, and it activates neurogenerativity in the hippocampus. The hippocampus is like the hope of the body. It generates new neural networks by having new experiences. So every time you have a new experience, you create a new uh, network in your brain, and that helps you to be more flexible and spontaneous and able to handle challenges. Um, and then all of this encourages positive emotion. So we're activating the release of dopamine, which is our reward system. We start to feel good um, through GABA, 
or and actually GABA is our anti-anxiety system and so we start to feel calm and then serotonin is released which is our confidence system and we start to feel worthy and a sense of belonging. So by doing all of this, by engaging in the arts and taking in the new creative experience, we begin to create new positive memories that become a part of who we are and not just something that we partake in on a daily basis and forget. So it's important to be able to um, do art. <laughs> so I just wanna mention very briefly the topic of my dissertation study and then I'm gonna end with a poem. So my dissertation study um, is looking at spirituality and creativity among culturally empowered African-Americans. It's a legacy of empowered community liberation. So I wanted to focus specifically on culturally empowered African-Americans because they generally work from an African-centered perspective that is irrespective of a European ethos. That's a really important thing because it means that we have our own sense of understanding the world that is not based in a European way of believing, thinking, moving, um, being. And so it's an important thing to be able to look at and understand in terms of um, identity development and overall well-being in the African descended person. I want to end with a poem that really talks about my own personal activism. Oh, where shall I be when the first trumpet sounds? Oh, where shall I be when it sounds so loud? When it sounds so loud as to wake up the dead. Oh, where shall I be? when it sounds. In church, we used to sing this song. It seemed as though we were begging, beseeching, hoping, wishing, praying for someone to release us from this misery. Song born of a people whose history was stolen. Surreptitiously buried by writers of history, politicians so overcome with capitalist gain, it led them across the globe, plundering culture, land, and resources because inside they were lacking couldn't understand our concept of abundance, an idea of always having what you need because the universe, ancestral deities, are infinite providers. To have auspicious beginnings only to be left with this, barely surviving in communities comprised of stolen people on stolen soil, no concept of freedom or equality, torn apart and scattered as breadcrumbs to crows, and you want me to forget miseducate me with systemic deceit, just cast away into oblivion every thought and possibility of reparation. Honestly, you can keep your sterile presidential apologies. We don't need them. It sounds like children who are made to apologize for something that they're really not sorry about. Besides, what words could you speak that would make it okay to sever relations with my brothers and sisters in Africa to an extent in which we may never be able to see eye to eye? To listen to a Malian brother ask a sister born here in America why she wanted a black doctor when white doctors were better. These are the kinds of conversations we have to entertain because of the global slander that America has so effectively spread about black people here. We live in existence constantly in defense of our own honor. 
Can you really apologize away the kind of hurt which comes from a statement that proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that the flagitious lies continually fed to Africans everywhere in this post-colonial era assures that I will never have a home? Does it apologize for faces once dark and bright with laughter turned puzzled, terrified, longing, mournful, sallow from illness, determined, then beaten, cracked, skulls cracked, necks on rope, determined, then beaten with whip, now nightstick? Beat out the very soul of existence, tranquilized into a stupor, needles filled with hundreds of years of self-hatred, injected with let me just keep my head low and maybe they won't harass me, bother me, notice me mentalities. And here we are in a new millennial, still salvaging scraps of truth. Shh. It's your dirty grand secret, America. Slavery is a crime against humanity and it will not be under rug swept. You owe us like you owe the Native Americans and the Japanese and the Jews and everyone else you can see your way to paying, you owe us. So sit there, squirm in your seats, try to diminish the words I speak, pass it off as merely a black issue. I wish you would try to say, oh my God, not another black identity piece, you'd think they'd be over it by now. Please, I am the reluctant revolutionary. I never wanted this. I never asked to be called out like this, never wanted to study my history because I knew I'd be pissed, just tried to get along accepting your equality and justice bullshit, trying to make compassion for the plight of my people in your mind stick. And then they say, well, it's a lot of y'all. We don't know who to give it to. It's too massive, too hard to calculate. But there seemed to be no problem calculating profits from free labor during slavery. Corporations don't have a problem calculating profits today afforded them by the blood, sweat, tears, lives, and souls of my great-grandmother's grandparents. She lived to be 110 years old, and her memories have been indelibly singed into my existence. So now I got Louis Armstrong, Clifford Brown, Miles Davis, and Dizzy Gillespie forming a quartet of trumpets sounding in my ears, sweet screaming, it's time to wake up. Exhume the dead buried souls of those lulled to sleep by helpless complacency, tranquilized by too many reality shows on VH1 and A&E. It's time to wake up, time to release the spirits of our ancestors and come together in solidarity. It's time to wake up, start learning about yourself, about your history before slavery. Stop buying and start investing, creating economic stability because we have to do it for ourselves. We can't wait on people who don't care. The revolution starts here. And here is where apologies cease and payment begins. I am the trumpet, let it sound. You are the trumpet, let it sound. We are the trumpet, let it sound so loud as to wake up the dead. Oh, where shall I be when it sounds? You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs and Performances. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website, ciis.edu slash podcast. <laughs>